From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. Francis is out today. I'm your host, Marjorie Sunser. Chairman of the House Armed Services Committee, Adam Smith, says the Defense Department shouldn't get funds for the industrial base in the upcoming stimulus package. Smith says the Pentagon should instead redirect money from the existing defense budget. Inside Defense reports, DOD Acquisition Chief Ellen Lord said the department plans to request, quote, billions and billions from Congress for the coronavirus response. More on this in just a moment. Democratic members of the Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee are demanding answers from the Office of Personnel Management, saying the agency has, quote, refused to brief them about its pandemic response. The senators want to know how the agency is ensuring its guidance about workplace flexibility is being properly implemented across the federal government. GovExec reports the lawmakers say the agency has been declining briefing requests since March 17th, the same day OPM Director Dale Cabanis resigned. A new Inspector General report finds the Department of Veterans Affairs knew it would miss its initial goal for electronic health record modernization. The VA needed to complete infrastructure improvements by September 2019 to meet its March 2020 goal, but the agency is not expected to complete those upgrades until this summer. NextGov reports the IG report says poor organization, infighting, and an extreme staffing shortage are to blame for the plan's failure. Congress and the White House are working on phase four of coronavirus relief, and it could have big implications for the Pentagon. In addition to keeping employees safe, the Defense Department wants to make sure its contractors stay afloat during the pandemic. Mackenzie Eaglin is resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Thanks for joining me, Mackenzie. Thanks. How should the Pentagon make its case for what it needs from this stimulus bill? I think the first step is to make lawmakers aware that there are continuing needs for the Defense Department workforces. So that's the uniformed personnel and their families, the defense civilian workforce, over 700,000 people, and the defense contractor workforce, everybody doing maintenance to building weapons to software development and IT, et cetera. So I think there's a not a full awareness on Capitol Hill that the, the Pentagon's needs are continuing just like they are in uh, elsewhere in America. and the that additional liquidity will be needed for the industrial base as well. You wrote an article uh, talking about how the DOD should handle this, and it sounds like you think handing over an unfunded priorities list would be a mistake, that they really need to um, kind of tailor this. Is that right? Exactly. So the unfunded lists are helpful, but if you just send them over without scrubbing them for uh, what's executable on a short-term basis, meaning that, so therefore you're adding uh, you're flowing in cash and keeping workload going for industrial-based companies. Otherwise, it just looks like, oh, yeah, you know, we need this extra, you know, aircraft or fighter jet or something, and it seems a little tone deaf, but there are real needs. Ellen Lord, uh, the Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition, has said it's in the billions of dollars. And, of course, she's talking about just the contractor workforce, but the, even on the uniform side. You know, there are COVID deployment uh, funds that are going to need to be replenished. There are stop movement orders in place for U.S. forces, uh, actually forces around the globe, and that's been extended by the secretary. That needs to be mitigated. DOD needs more personal protective equipment and sanitation, just like uh, workers anywhere else. And frankly, the DOD IT infrastructure for teleworking is pretty dismal, and they're going to need funds to prop that up, too. 
Let, let's talk about contractors for a minute. Um, what do you think DOD needs for them, and should there be any requirements um, for contractors that they help? So Pentagon leaders are doing a great job, along with the service acquisition executives, to do everything they can to use all of the tools at their disposal to help keep particularly the suppliers and vendors, many of which are small businesses, uh, from going under, going out of business, or even furloughing workers during the COVID crisis. So that's great. So they're doing everything from accelerating contract awards. I think the Navy's going to push up the, the new frigate award, for example. They're increasing progress payments, uh, both to big and small companies, um, but all kinds of things like that, additional loans and other help. That's great but they, they can only do so much absent additional liquidity, which is where Congress is going to come into this. And they have these tools but and they have these authorities, but money talks, and that's what's going to keep the defense industrial base uh, churning. There are delays. There's no question about it. They're going to have to accept some of those delays and possibly even pay for them. It's similar to like what a legal remedy would be in an act of God clause. And I think that's something that the Pentagon and Congress need to look into is essentially property these industries to ensure that because they're essential, there, there will be work uh, to return to when this crisis abates. The chairman of the House Armed Services Committee said this week he doesn't think DOD needs more money. How is that going to affect the negotiations process? That is That should be front of mind for the Secretary of Defense. He needs to be aware, firstly, that many members of Congress share the chairman's uh, belief, which I think is just a matter of needing to be more informed on a more detailed level. Um, uh, the Senate Majority Leader has said comments similarly, I think, behind closed doors. And, you know, they, you can't really blame members because at the State of the Union, which now feels like so long ago, but only in January, the president said the military has been completely rebuilt. So there is there are some misperceptions about the need over uh, for DOD to take care of each one of its workforces, and they are responding to COVID. The chairman needs to be informed, but it's going to be a bit of a sales effort by the secretary and his team. They need to get busy uh, knocking on virtual doors on Capitol Hill. I also want to make sure we get to one other piece in your article, which you talked about how the Pentagon can, can turn to the Defense Production Act for small businesses, for subcontractors. Can you explain that a little bit? So... This White House has been a little reluctant to, to full, fully invoke the Defense Production Act. They're hoping that companies will respond voluntarily. And in a large part, the American industry has. They are retooling production lines across commercial industry to help um, uh, shift production to PPE in particular. But the Defense Production Act can be used with the defense industrial base, obviously, uh, to help it continue to maintain its work doing defense and national security work, not necessarily shifting to medical work since there, there is that's already happening. And so essentially there are lots of um, authorities and clauses and uh, powers resident, if you will, in the Defense Production Act that DOD can utilize more fully. Inside the DPA are some interesting uh, lines. It's There's an emphasis on taking care of small businesses, of which, of course, DOD cares greatly about in its contractor workforce, and in areas of economic decline in particular. There's a lot of latitude to give uh, uh, more benefits, cash and liquidity and loans and assistance to small businesses and small businesses in areas of economic decline. I think DOD needs to be aware of this and use it much more robustly than it has. It's really only been on a small scale so far. A lot of defense contracts have this rating within it, this DPA rating, but whether or not it's being used, uh, it's not publicly available, so it's hard to say. But I 
I suspect it could certainly be employed more often. Thanks so much, Mackenzie. My pleasure. Thanks. Up next, how the coronavirus is changing federal acquisition. Straight ahead on Government Matters, how procurement could change when offices reopen. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Welcome back. The Navy has spent 30% more on contracts this April than it did last April, partly because of the coronavirus. The service's top acquisition official said he hopes the increased pace will become its new normal. Joe Jordan is CEO at Actiparo and former administrator of federal procurement policy. Thanks for joining me, Joe. Thanks for having me, Marjorie. How are you seeing the acquisition workforce adapt to these times? Yeah, um, the workforce both uh, agency contracting officers and acquisition personnel, as well as uh, the contractor community, have adapted to this remote kind of working um, and the closure of so many places where the you know services are. Um, I think you know it's a testament to a lot of the systems and policies that have been set up in advance for um, you know potential issues where the workforce would have to be remote. It's also a credit to. Um, you know, Congress and the agencies for quickly setting up a program where those who couldn't work um, because their workplace was closed could get some um, reimbursement and remuneration. Um, but overall, as you said, I, I think that, um, you know, things are moving about as smoothly as possible given these um, uh, unique times. How have the stimulus packages that we've seen so far affected acquisition and, and contractors? Yeah, you know, I think it's uh, a bit of a kind of, um, you know, two sides of the coin. One, um, the Section 3610, which was the provision that allows agencies and contracting officers to reimburse contractors um, for their personnel costs when, um, you know, those workers can't access the facility to take place. Um, you know, the class deviations, the documents agencies needed to issue to allow um, that program to be implemented happened very quickly. And, and I applaud agencies for doing that. Um, so I, I think that's where the stimulus package has been quite helpful. Um, on the other hand, uh, you know, for small businesses, they're primarily focused on the uh, almost unmitigated disaster that the, the PPP, the Payroll Protection Program rollout has been. And uh, same with the economic injury disaster loans. These are um, these are providing a lot of hope to small businesses that they'd be able to access these forgivable loans um, and, and stay afloat, um, persevere through these tough times. And unfortunately, and I, I don't blame SBA or Treasury, you know, having to stand up these programs so quickly, um, you know, was an insurmountable challenge, unfortunately, but it really has um, uh, been the focus of all of the companies I've talked to and, and not in a good way. Do you think, going back to what Hondo Gert said that I alluded to in the intro, do you think that there could be some um, long-term consequences to the, the changes that are being put in place, that this might really change acquisition after this is over? Yeah, I think, um, you know, it reinforces the of uh, cybersecurity and having innovative tools to help you with your workflow. Um, those are positives and things that I think will continue no matter what the new normal is down the road. Uh, I think that it's it's been important for agencies to figure out creative ways to keep the content 
growing even when the team is scattered. And I think a lot of those learnings are going to be very beneficial going forward. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, it's hard to say how sustainable some of these things are without that um, team collaboration and human-to-human -human contact that really does help the problem solving and the solution finding for more of the longer term strategic issues. So I know many of my friends in the contracting community are uh, itching to move from Zoom back to some face-to-face -face interactions. Sure. You hinted at um, some of the maybe challenges or gaps that, that companies, small businesses are facing. Are there things that you would recommend? Are there things that you think um, the government can be doing to help the acquisition community more, to help contractors more? Yeah, I think, you know, in the a future, and, and we refer to this as stimulus, but, I, you know, I think of it more as survival. But in a future survival legislation, I'd love to see a reinforcement of these um, kind of Section 3610, those contracts that allow paid, making it more of a presumption that uh, contracting officers should pay these contractors to keep in a ready state rather than, um, you know, putting it all at a contracting officer's discretion that, that sometimes can put them in a, in a tough spot. I think streamlining the process for that would be would be really also with um, some of the small business programs like the 8A program and others extending eligibility by a year or so given um, you know what a tough and turbulent time it's been of late and, and likely won't be back to normal anytime soon. I think things like that could be beneficial for long-term economic recovery and uh, viability for the contractors and contract community. Uh, going back to the idea that that obviously people do want to go back to work at some point, what does that transition look like, you think, as the acquisition community goes back to work, as maybe contractors go back to work? Certainly, uh, you know, a hot topic of debate. We, we've morphed, you know, people don't always think about the fact that we've morphed over time to a place where, um, you know, the government buys far more services than goods. And so when you're thinking about those service workers, those, those personnel, being brought back into a workplace to perform um, you know, their contract with social distancing rules, which are things we now know about um, you know, the way that this virus spread, especially before we have a vaccine. Uh, it, it will be interesting to see what sort of protocols are necessary and can you know, the contract still be performed in the way it was originally intended or do adjustments need to be made. Same on the, you know, the contract personnel side. I know agencies are, are spending quite a bit of time and putting a lot of thought against how does the, you know, the workplace look? How do, um, you know, we populate this. Do we do full time everybody back in the office or do we still uh, retain some piece of the kind of, uh, you know, remote working environment that we have now? I think, you know, the answer is still a bit unclear, but there's no doubt that this will be an ongoing conversation for the next, you know, few months at least. Thank you so much for joining me, Joe. I appreciate it. Up next, making sure the Defense Department's cyber hygiene is up to par. Straight ahead on Government Matters, where the Pentagon is lagging behind in cyber measures. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv.
The Defense Department has some catching up to do on cybersecurity initiatives. The Government Accountability Office says DOD hasn't finished some tasks that were supposed to be complete by the end of fiscal year 2016. Joseph Kirschbaum is Director of Defense Capabilities and Management Issues at the Government Accountability Office. Thank you for joining us. Good morning. You were tasked with evaluating DOD cyber hygiene. Let's start by talking about how do you define that and how did you assess that? Uh, that's a great question. So what we found right off the bat was cyber hygiene as a term uh, doesn't really exist in the nomenclature. It's, it's not well defined. The Department of Defense officials have used this term on occasion as a, a shorthand speak with uh, con Congress and others to talk about the, the degree to which its uh, defense personnel are adhering to cybersecurity practices. So the current situation, as you might imagine, is a perfect analogy for this. There are individual technological practices we all have to take uh, in terms of cybersecurity, just as we do uh, to prevent the spread of viruses. Those tasks are known to experts. They're known at a higher level to all of us. Uh, the ability to make sure that all of us are following those practices, the education, the 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 follow-up, that's the hygiene part. So make, that's kind of where it comes in, and that's where it crosses that cultural boundary. As you started looking into this at DOD, what did you find? What had they done so far? The Department of Defense actually has done a, a great job at recognizing where they need to go in terms of cybersecurity and the defensive side of, of protecting information systems. So in 2015, they released a DOD cyber strategy that has since been overtaken by a much broader 2018 strategy. Nonetheless, that 2015 strategy laid out a, a path for the department to make improvements in cybersecurity. So the department followed that up with several initiatives that are aimed directly at that cultural component that I mentioned. So it goes beyond just the individual technical responsibilities. It's ways to ensure that the entire department follows up with their individual responsibilities. So they came up with these uh, several uh, areas. One of them is called the cultural, um, the cultural compliance initiative, and that's looked at the broader departmental culture and, and how to implement these hygiene practices. The other was aimed at a slightly higher level, more at leadership, and that was the cybersecurity discipline implementation plan. Once again, it's kind of getting the word to commanders uh, about their responsibility to ensure that these cyber hygiene practices are followed. The third was the um, ongoing effort by the department for every single individual to take their individual training for cybersecurity awareness. Uh, and without that training, they're not able to access DOD's information systems. What were the main recommendations you made in the report? So one of the things we found was those initiatives, the, the um, cultural and compliance initiative, the cyber discipline implementation plan, and, and to some degree, the awareness program, uh, they were very well founded. They, they, they hit the right notes in terms of culture, what needed to be done. What we found was that on the implementation side of it, and more importantly, on the understanding of the degree to which those were implemented, the individual tasks, uh, there was a, a gap in, in DOD's understanding of how well they were implemented. Uh, not only um, the degree to which they were not implemented at all or well past their implementation due dates, but also kind of an understanding of, of who in the department had implemented those things and 
and to what degree. Some of these things are very basic cybersecurity practices, like in, like incorporating um, these hygiene practices into training or into exercises and things of that nature. So we, our recommendations are centered around those kinds of things, ensuring that the department has a process to follow up on those key uh, measures, whether it's the, the, the specific issues that we found with the, those plans, those 2015 plans, and also the degree to which the department is flowing that information up to the department leaders so they can have real understanding of the risk management decisions they will need to take based on the implementation of hygiene practices. Just about a minute to go, what, what was DOD's uh, response to your recommendations? So the response um, was mixed. They uh, partially agreed with some of our recommendations. Uh, there was a concern by the department that these are 2015 practices and, and plans and they may be outdated. Uh, our concern is that a lot of the things that are in those plans, like the, some of the things I mentioned, these are these are not only basic cybersecurity practices, they're, they're uh, aligned with a lot of the NIST standards that are out now. So they are very much still relevant or they have not been determined to be irrelevant. The department did not agree with, with things like designating someone in the department to ensure these things get done or designating someone in the department to understand the degree to which all the components throughout the military services are implementing key defensive practices um, to protect against uh, known cybersecurity threats. That's a pretty important one because without that knowledge, uh, even though we know a lot of these things are being done by the services, without that knowledge, you could have situations where um, you won't know that an attack is being uh, done until it's underway and you, you still might lose some, uh, some data. Um, so those are the kind of things we uh, believe are still important for the department to uh, pay attention to, whether it's uh, in terms of leadership, who does it, how it's done, and then how well that information flows up to department leadership. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. If you've missed the show or you're on the go, you can stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Government Matters is now available as an audio podcast. You can subscribe to our daily program on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. Or ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters podcast. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join us weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Marjorie Sensor. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Andrew Wagner. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.